and welcome to the Practice as Research um, Network podcast. Um, I'm very excited to um, have you here today and um, I am going to introduce you to a very special guest who is going to talk to me about Practice as Research. Um, so Jasmine, do you want to say hello? Hello. <laughs> um, just a, a quick intro then. Uh, my name is Dr. Jasmine Hazel Shadrach and um, I am formerly a senior lecturer of over a decade and I am now um, an independent scholar and a visiting lecturer at the uh, uh, University of Falmouth and the University of Missouri in the States. Um, and I do a lot of work for BIM in Berlin as well. And um, the idea of, of um, research as practice or to be a, a, a pracademic, to use a term coined by Rebecca Lamont-Jiggins, is um, it's not just a question of thinking about the theory, because you need to be able to put that theory into practice. Yes. So you have your methodology and you have your method methodological framework, and those things fuse together to help create new ontologies and epistemologies. That's kind of where I'm currently at with it. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much. I really appreciate that. But can I ask you, um, I, know, I know obviously what your field of study is, but can you tell for, for the benefit of anyone who's listening and watching um, what, you, what your field of study is? Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm a musician and um, I'm also, uh, so it's, it's, uh, it's, trauma, trauma study, it's trauma studies and disability studies, um, performance studies and musicology. Thank you very much. Thank you. So um, the first thing that I would like to ask you really is how how do you define practice as research? I mean, you've kind of already said a little bit about um, about the epistemologies and, and ontologies. But at the same time, you know, how do you within your own field um, as a musicologist define practice as research? Well, I think it came an awful lot from my PhD I think I mean I've been a, an extreme metal guitarist for 21 years now and you know also being an academic you know you can be on stage or you know you're composing you're going to your gigs you're moving all your equipment and whilst all of these things are happening you've got audience engagement and things and something will happen and it will jar you and you're like oh okay that's really significant that means something I need to work out what that means and through that process I then realized that I was establishing a new way of thinking about these things because there's not very many women on stage playing extreme metal. <laughs> there still isn't. Um, and I realized that I, I was in quite a, an interesting position to be able to speak from my experiences. So as a direct result of that, I discovered my methodology for I think I already knew what I wanted to use as my theoretical framework but the methodology was the thing that was I was like well god how am I going to do this and it's all very well me experiencing these things but how do I you know, have a system to help me make sense of what they mean yes. um, and I discovered something called interpretive performance autoethnography and people it's very easy to get autoethnography wrong and think it's autobiography and it's not yes. it's really difficult because you have to examine, you are the self examining the self and you've got to be really rigorous and hard with yourself. So if you're not prepared to uh, stare at yourself long and hard, then don't do it <laughs> because it can be very difficult because a lot of the 
they're called epiphanic moments or turning point events. You know, these these things that stay with you that help to define who you are becoming. Yes. You know, they sometimes they can be really nice ones, but oftentimes they can be quite traumatic ones. And it offers you a system to go back into those moments to unpick them and disentangle them. Yes, thank you very much. I mean, I, I agree with you. Um, autoethnography is one of those things that's often um, often done badly. Um, I'm not yeah. saying always, but it is often done badly because people um, either, like you say, don't actually do that introspection well enough or they don't look out much either, you know. So so it's kind of, it suddenly becomes just well, kind of understanding what I am and where I am, but not actually making any connections outwards either. Mm-hmm. But because, so I, I'd, you know, I'd been in my area of research without even realising it was going to be my area of research, you know, for like just over two decades. So I'd already, you know, whether I realised it or not at the time, already started to do my data gathering. Um, but it was just like, well, how on earth am I going to, you know, make sense of all of this? But actually, that wasn't my starting block. My my starting block was as a a survivor of domestic abuse. And, you know, when I managed to get myself out of that scenario, um, it is always the most dangerous point. And I thought, well, what am I going to do with all of this? You know, I, I need a home. I need somewhere safe, but somewhere dark to put all this. You know, I was never going to create music that was going to be considered pop or anything in a major key. Well, no. <laughs> so I decided to co-create a black metal band. And black metal is a subsection of extreme metal. Uh, that actually um, originates in Scandinavia, Norway particularly, and some Sweden. And I actually, having spent, you know, well over a decade playing death metal, it just became so, oh, the misogyny was just too much. I just couldn't handle it anymore. And I couldn't go back there because I wasn't the same woman anymore. I was like, well, I need to find a new space, right? So I created one knowing full well that there was you know a wealth of you know understanding what the the key compositional signifiers were and you know what the aesthetics were and I was very lucky just purely through happenstance really to find some other people that wanted to do this too so we started a band and then that became the, the practice focus of my PhD and, you know, we ended up being, you know, pretty successful and doing some incredible shows and, you know, all over the all over the world. And then I spent all of last year turning it into my monograph, which is, if I may, excuse the post. That's exciting. <laughs> yes, that's exciting. That is exciting. Oh, uh, I love the cover work. Oh, thank you. <laughs> well, I wore Atlas on stage. Um, and it's, um, you know, I think, God, what would I have done about all of that? working through all of that trauma had I have not somehow instinctively known that as an artistic person I needed to 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 house it all in an artistic safe space I mean black metal isn't a safe music but the people I was working with I considered to be safe and that meant a great deal to me so can I just ask you to kind of go back a little bit because you were saying that um you know that that somehow the field of study in a way found you or the practice as research in a way found you as much as you found it. Yeah. Um, what's the kind of the body of literature that you use to kind of help you define that kind of relationship with, with, you know, the practice as research? There's, there's two fields actually. Uh, one of which of course is the interpretive performance autoethnography field, uh, yeah. particularly this, this, 
it's only a little book, but you Nora know, every, Denton, yes. every single word in here is gold. <laughs> I literally, honestly, you should see the state of this book. I've underlined literally every single word. I mean, look, look at it. <laughs> you really hit on something when you're suddenly underlining everything like crazy. You're like, oh God, this is it. This is the one, you know, holy grail. Um, and then the other side of that was um, a, a body of work that started at about 2014 called Black Metal Theory. So it's a subsidiary theoretical frame that sits within metal music studies. And it has a very different way of engaging and the language style is different. It's like academic prose, if such a thing would exist. It's like, you know, if the romantic poets had been academics, it's the most beautiful language style and it's really dark and engaging and a bit like Christeva actually, her language style. It doesn't shy away from being really, am I allowed to swear or not? Yes, you are, <laughs> as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> it doesn't shy away from being really fucking dark and angry. And I thought, oh, that's my jam. I need some of that. So I started to get engaged with that and realised it was talking about all the bands that I absolutely loved. And I thought, right, I think I've found quite a significant marriage between two different oeuvres of work. And it just so happened that through the band that I'd co-started, it all started to coalesce together rather beautifully. So one of the things that I'm, I'm really interested in is exactly what you started to kind of talk about now, and I'd like to delve in a little bit more, more if I may, um, is that, you know, when you're playing in your band, and that's obviously the practice part. Yeah. <laughs> so so when, when does the, the guitarist artist stop and the researcher Jasmine come in? At what point is there this transition from being only not not in in any kind of pejorative way, but like purely rather than only? But you know, at what point is 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 there no longer that pure artist Jasmine, um, but then the dual person, the artist researcher? I don't think I ever separated them. And you know when you're when you're researching when you're using yourself and your own experiences as your as your data, it's I mean you're leaving yourself very open and very vulnerable. I was caught, like really aware of that right from the get go, and particularly because I was talking about the the trauma. It's you know with a really important question with autoethnography is you need to know when enough is enough. You need to say, right, I've done enough on that now and I need to stop. Because if you if you don't exercise some discipline and some control over this, you know, this could keep going on and on and on. And you would end up actually re-traumatizing yourself. So you need to be really careful. Um, you know, and I only discovered that when I was doing all the, you know, all the editing for the monograph last year. And I thought, God, you know, there's sections of this that I just can't, I can't reread this again. I'm done. I just literally cannot. Um, so whilst you are there is no separation between the researcher and the researched it's all encapsulated within one person and as long as you acknowledge that right from the get-go and that becomes a kind of mantra that you always fall back on that really helps I don't think I was ever very successful at separating these things out you know I could be on stage and I'm you know we're playing our songs and then the audience is there but how the audience is then engaging Yes. It's my researcher brain that's going, hang on, that's really interesting, that's really interesting, I need to make sure I remember that, whilst not fucking up what I'm playing. <laughs> yes. So, you know, you are, 
your your brain is firing on all cylinders in that moment because there's just so much information to take in and you don't want to forget any of it um but I don't think I ever really very successfully said oh well I'm on stage so this is guitarist jazz or performer jazz yeah. and I'm at home now with my with my research. research and my books now I'm researcher jazz I don't think I was ever able to have like a nice clear definition but the the framework of the autosnography really did help because it was taken from Jean-Paul Sartre and so you have this capacity to be able to work backwards and then examine where you are and having those frameworks actually really assisted me in the entire process. So are you an autoethnographer? Hmm I think I was for that one moment but then because I delved so deeply into it I don't think I'll ever not be. Yeah. Now I know it so intimately. That makes sense. It makes complete sense to me. So, yeah, thank you very much. Um, can I just ask, I mean, in a way you've kind of started to, to talk about that a little bit, but again, I'd like to kind of go back um, to it a little bit, is um, what do you think are the challenges of practice as research? So if anyone was going to say, um, oh, that is an, an interesting way of doing research, I want to try that, what would you tell them? A couple of things, I think, probably. I mean, it's not autobiography. It's not just you telling somebody your life story. That's not what this is. The, the, the point is to be really rigorous and analytical. So you can have your methodology, but if you don't have a theoretical framework to apply to the data that you've gathered, what was the point of doing it? So I chose Judith Butler and Julia Kristeva because of the performative nature of their, of their psychoanalysis. Yes. And I think, actually, I just... I kind of, I, I actually needed psychoanalysis to help me make sense of my own mind during those processes. And I learned so much. I discovered so much. And that's the point, isn't it, of the research, right? To just, to just get to my, there's, there's always more than one truth, but I needed to know that it was my truth and not the truth that the abuser wanted to rule. You know, it needed to be my story, not theirs. Um, so it was a very cathartic but very painful process and I was really grateful that there was a, a musical space, a dialogical space that I could bring all of this stuff to and go here, here is some really potent content for, you know, for the album, let's get it done. Because then I could just, I can cut it out of me and go there, it's over there now, I don't have to keep it within me because if you, if you do that, it'll make you ill yes you've, got, you've just got to get it out of you and you know a lot of therapy is kind of based on that idea right talking therapies and everything but you know to get it out but um sorry my dog is about to start coughing I'm so sorry <laughs> that's all right <laughs> um I've got two more questions so you, you know it's nearly done for the doc <laughs> just, just one, one last word of caution um you might not realise what you're getting into with autoethnography until you're in it. And then you're like, oh, God, this is really big. This is really significant and important. And it, and it might be too much for me emotionally. Yes. So self-care when you're doing autoethnography is really important. Don't just dive in and assume it's going to be a normal research practice because it's not. No, I agree mind. with you. Mind. Yes, I, I, I agree with you. And and often there is not enough um, support 
around mm. for for people that that do that kind of work i i do agree with I you agree. Mm. i agree so how do you how would you like to see your own practice as research develop what what do you what's your your plan for 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 the kind of the next steps how do you want to you know take that further now or are you done with it uh, well interestingly um due to some health issues um I became I, I'm, I'm now disabled so I have realized that suddenly an intersecting element into all of my research practice is disability theory and you know I discovered that I'm neurodivergent I'm autistic and I've got ADHD and you know all of these things happened I, you know I discovered I got my diagnoses like one after the other and I was like oh my god right okay so this is this I have to deal with this now um and so whilst I can't perhaps be on stage in the way that I was before I've had to reimagine what that selfhood looks like and what my composition and performance is going to be like moving forward you know pandemic aside um so myself and the other woman in in the band um she and I decided to carry on working together so we've decided to do that and I'm composing a lot more now I'm actually composing a requiem mass so that's taken up quite a lot of time <laughs> so it's so my, my I'm still doing the autoethnography but it's, it's it looks very different so are you saying that instead of doing a kind of more um sort of you know written autoethnography where you're writing about your your practice on stage it's now becoming a case of um, the, the the process of thinking um, is embedded in the composition, so in the doing. Mm, definitely. Is, definitely. Is that what was happening, I, that um, these two things are kind of merging together more? It's really affected the way that I write, actually, which I, which I um, really love, actually. Um, I've just written a chapter for the, the new Music and Death book through Emerald. And I used Walter Benjamin and the idea of the creaturely and that, you know, because through this process, I've actually become a kind of altered version of what existed before. And that wouldn't have happened if I hadn't found autoethnography, if I hadn't have got an acquired disability. And it's just really made me engage with new lines of flight, to quote Deleuze. That's really interesting. Mm. So, what, how do you see how do you see the practice as research or autoethnography develop in your field? Like, so, as as a part of musicology, is there mm. is there scope for that? There is scope for it, but it, uh, it's interesting that if it's musicology, people would much rather be called musicologists, <laughs> yes. and they want to get to the nuts and bolts of a score, right, or, or a recording, and I. I appreciate that. So what I did was was merge the two, like bring these things together. You know, you you don't have to just be a musicologist or a performer, because if you're if you're a musician, you're always analysing the music. You don't ever stop. Well, I certainly don't ever stop. It drives me crazy sometimes. Um, I don't ever stop analysing the music. So it seemed strange to me that there was this gap in the research, generally speaking. Um, so. You know, I'm not saying that my monograph is going to change the way people do their research or anything, but, you know, there's there's an example there now of, of you know, it can be done. Just be careful. Thank you. I really appreciate that. <laughs> I mean, I, I must admit that um, it's, it's that... that 
gap that's that's that for me is the interesting part is you know like how how do you kind of make sense that on the one hand you're theoretically thinking about it and then you're practically doing it but actually it's two separate entities and that's exactly why I'm, I'm so interested in this whole idea of practice as research where we can say actually this is a different way of doing it let's bring those two things together and see see what happens in a way but at the same time because it's not conventional research um it's probably more difficult to 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 boundary it and and it's therefore less tangible um and that's probably why it's becoming more difficult to handle there's an assumption that it's um biased as well <laughs> yes and you know you're just like well if i'm talking about my trauma and what happened to me and my time on stage as a guitarist you know nobody else can can speak more fully about that than up than me and I was just so relieved that this framework actually existed yeah. um that actually facilitated me being able to actually do that with uh, with you know solid rigor that it wasn't just autobiography but you know the idea of the researched and the researcher is a, a very old standing academic idea isn't it and you know therefore that it will be unbiased and objective and I think when it comes to anything to do with subjectivity, you, you need to be able to put your own voice in what you're doing. Yes. You've got, to use, you've got to use, you know, the, the performative I, not, you know, that typical academic language. And, you know, I actually had to say that at the beginning of, the, of my monograph. There are times when I do use typical academic language, but there's times when I'm talking about my own experiences. I don't do that. And this is the reason why. So you do get this changing of voice that happens throughout the, the monograph, but it was it was necessary. Thank you. But the thing is also is both both voices are true voices, aren't they? They both true the truth, just different different elements of it in a way. Yes. Yeah, but yes. one's given more respect than the other. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Uh, well, thank you very much, um, Jasmine. I really, really appreciate the time that you've taken today. Um, My pleasure. I'm going thank to you be, me. I'm going to make, be making sure that we've got the link to um, the book as well, so that people can check out your your work more more oh, closely you. and more more carefully. Um, and um, I'll, I'll look forward to to future connections and and further work from you um, in in that area. Mm -hmm.